At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Ginger Duncan of Mystic Mountain to talk about her experience living in the wilderness of Alaska. Ginger Duncan is the owner and director of Mystic Mountain Sustainability Learning Center. She loves her wilderness lifestyle and hopes to develop an echo village on her 40-acre homestead on Kodiak Island in the Gulf of Alaska. Although Ginger has lived on the island for 45 years, it wasn't until she started living off-grid around 16 years ago that she really began connecting with the earth and her personal responsibility to live in harmony with it. She realized that the more she learned, the more she wanted to learn and share her knowledge. Ginger loves clean eating and is passionate about showing people that a healthy diet can be delicious, not deprivational that growing your own food is tremendously empowering, and that fitness can be fun. Welcome to the show today, Ginger. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to chat with you and your guests. Absolutely. So I shared just a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Certainly. Yeah, I moved to the island of Kodiak when I was two years old because my father was a shrimper and crabber. And wow. grew up here always thinking that I was trapped and there was nothing to do. And it was <laughs> such a horribly, uh, horrible state of affairs to be stuck here. And it wasn't until I met my husband that I realized how fortunate I was to live here. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to off-grid living. We went out to the 40-acre homestead on which he had formerly operated a Sitka Blacktail deer hunting lodge. Oh, wow. And and I just fell in love with it and him simultaneously. <laughs> How nice. It's just exquisite. The real authentic wilderness of Alaska is absolutely mind-blowing. And when I started living in the middle of it and seeing the beauty and the bounty of resources It just kind of crystallized for me the responsibility that we have for taking care Mm -hmm. of that. And so I started learning about how to use what was in front of me. Um, We were operating a sport fishing and ecotourism lodge for a number of years out of our homestead. And as part of my duties, I was responsible for guiding people through the woods and along the beaches. So I started making a point of learning about foraging for wild edibles and medicinals. So I can take you for a walk in the woods and we can graze our way through the forest. We can go down to the beach and I'll pry things off of rocks and stick them in your mouth. And and, uh, it's great fun to know that I have the ability to eat 
out of the wild. Yeah. And and uh, so I learned about food preservation techniques thereafter so that I could put some of this food up for later. And so I learned about smoking fish. Our smoker will hold two dozen fish at a time. Oh, my God. I, I learned about dehydrating. Mm-hmm. We make our own venison jerky and fruit leather. And we dry things um, to put in mason jars on the shelf so I can take out fresh celery from my garden any time of the year that's been dried. Uh, I am a freak about pressure cooking. I own five. Oh, cabinets. my gosh. Really? I have five. Wow. <laughs> Three out at camp and two in town so that I am never without the ability to do some pressure cooking. Wow. And, and I just find it really rewarding to be able to look at my pantry shelves I'm looking right now at salmonberry juice, rhubarb juice, canned salmon, canned venison, pickled garlic, pickled tomatoes, pickled nasturtium pods, relishes, wow. soups and stews that I can. So instead of opening a store-bought can with the BPA liners and the chemical-laden yeah. food in it, I know I'm eating clean. So that's been a lot of fun for me. And uh, I love teaching that to other people. That was the impetus behind the Sustainability Learning Center is showing people what you can do. Mm Because I've always believed what one man can do, another can do. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't know once upon a time. And now that I do, I want others to as well. Isn't that cool? I, I, that's part of what drives me too. It's like I have all this great knowledge up in my head and I want to share it with people. Yeah, it's very exciting when you learn what you are capable of. Because we live on an island, too, mm-hmm. we are very susceptible to interruptions in the food supply. Everything oh, yeah. that is in the store here is either coming in by jets or on the huge container ships. And I don't think many people realize that if there was an interruption, whether terrorism, natural disaster, an accident, whatever, mm-hmm. our store shelves could be empty in the matter of a couple of days. And how many people would know what to do, how to provide for their families. And and even here on an island that was colonized by Alaskan natives thousands of years ago, much of that knowledge of the subsistence lifestyle has been lost. It's not being passed on. Mm. And I find that incredibly sad. So I want to combat it. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at the map. I'm just trying to place you on the map. Um, the pictures in here, when I did a Google search for Kodiak Island, are just stunningly beautiful. It is. Kodiak is spectacular. One of its nicknames is the Emerald Isle, uh-huh. um, similar to Ireland. Very, very lush, thousand shades of green. That's because we do have a great deal of precipitation. Islands tend to make their own weather. Uh, another of its nicknames is the northernmost Hawaiian island. Oh, yes. My- yeah, reminds me a lot of Kauai, just uh-huh. real dramatic, jagged cliffs and mountains, thick, thick vegetation, a stunning sea that is so powerful. It can beat you up or placate you oh, yeah. sometimes in the same day. So it's it's a fairly large island at the south end of Alaska. Yeah, Kodiak is about 80 miles long and about 60 miles wide. Mm -hmm. The only island bigger than us is the big island of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that they qualify as larger than us is purely land mass because we have a great deal of fjords, deep, deep inlets and bays. I see that. I see that on the map, yeah. Yeah, and we are, if you envision Alaska like um, someone running and leaping 
over Kodiak. That's where we're situated is kind of the, the panhandle that comes along Canada yep. and the Aleutian chain that goes out towards Russia. Those sort of straddle our island. But we're about 550 air miles from the mainland. So to get to my home takes uh, extra effort. Uh, wow. There are quite a few commercial flights during the day from the city of Anchorage down to Kodiak. Once you get here, the only way to get to my home is by air taxi, small planes that hold only four or five people that will land on the ocean, or by sea. And that's normally the way we travel because we can carry more gear and supplies when right. we go by boat. So from the city of Kodiak, we have to drive 13 miles over a mountain pass on a really gnarly not potholed road to a bay that is on the northern tip, the other side of the northern tip of the island. And then all of the supplies and gear have to get taken out of the truck, walked down the dock, loaded in a skiff, which is an open boat with no cabin on it. Right. And then we put on all kinds of gear, dependent on the season, for an hour-long boat ride home over open ocean. Wow. But my commute is quite unlike yours, I'm sure. <laughs> We pass a sea otter colony that numbers in the hundreds. We pass a bird rookery that is one of the largest in the Northern Hemisphere. Wow. Quite often we see whales. Always we see eagles, um, sometimes porpoise, sometimes uh -huh. deer or fox on the beach. So my, my ride home can be quite scenic, but it can also be quite brutal. There are times where I've made that run myself and cried and prayed my way home at the top of my lungs because the ocean conditions were such oh, wow. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it home. Yeah. Wow. So you're, you're so how, what's the population of Kodiak Island? The city of Kodiak numbers around 10 to 11,000. Mm -hmm. That is largely well, there's the bureaucracy that it takes to run any community, but right. there's a Coast Guard community here. We have the largest Coast Guard base mm. in the Northern Hemisphere as well. And so they have personnel and their families that are always rotating in and out of here. And we're also the second largest fishing port in the entire state of Alaska. Oh, so wow. a huge portion of our community is made up of fishermen. Wow. Oh, so, well, so thank you so much for that picture of the you know of your of your commute let's call it your commute because my commute to the coffee house is about four minutes around the corner i'll bet you don't have one of those do you no in the city of kodiak there are a few coffee shops but i spend as little time in the city as possible to wow. me the real alaska is out in the bush yeah nice nice my city is 4.4 million people wow yeah no kidding <laughs> No so far, kidding. ours is two, but I do hope to change that in the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you say you live an off-grid subsistence lifestyle at Mystic Mountain. What does that entail? Well, it means that anything we need, we better be able to provide for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, we live off the land in almost every way possible. We have a spring-fed creek that comes out of the mountain, which stands over camp. And we've harnessed the energy from that creek with a micro-hydroelectric system oh, that nice. gives us power. So all eight of our buildings have electricity, mm -hmm. courtesy of Mother Nature. So nice. we aren't burning any petroleum products. Mm -hmm. So there's no um, pollution created as a result of providing for our electric needs. We have no television reception, no cell service, no internet. So when I say we are off-grid, 
I mean, we are so far off grid mm-hmm. that those things just don't even Exist enter in the realm of our existence. And the subsistence portion of our lifestyle entails really working hard to be a good steward of the land, to take advantage of all the resources around mm-hmm. us while having as little impact as possible. So I gather wild edibles and medicinals from May through October. I put up a lot of food from the wild and also I grow quite a bit of organic produce. So we really try to put as little demand on the planet as possible mm-hmm. and to have as little impact as we as we can. Wow. So let, let's talk about that. So first of all, your day length in the wintertime is... On, call it December 21st, is how long is your day? We have about six hours of daylight in December. In December? And yeah. um, so that means you have probably 18 hours in June? As much as 21, actually. Oh, wow. As much Which as- is, yeah, and that's part of why the plants go berserk with all that daylight. Yeah. They're just growing like crazy. Right. So you have a shorter growing season, longer days. Exactly. And what I was fascinated to learn when I first started getting into gardening, which was only a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. is that the light is way more important than heat. So oh, it's yeah. the daylight hours that the plants get their energy from. And so our, our growing season is short because the ground is still so cool. A couple mm-hmm. years ago, I tried to rush things and I planted seeds in my garden but the soil was too cold and the plants ended up stunted. They never really recovered from that. Yeah. And so I have hoop houses now that I got through a NRCS grant program. And then we can bump up the soil temperature slightly by putting secondary hoops over individual beds. Oh, yes. Yes. And then mulch is also a really great insulator that yep. helps keep some heat in. And so we can extend it somewhat. And in fact, there are quite a few growers here in Kodiak who are using their hoop houses and other practices to grow almost year round here. The cool weather crops like brassicas mm-hmm. can actually be planted in August and they get mature enough before the real cold sets in. Oh, wow. And then they will kind of go dormant for a couple months, but they don't die. One of my girlfriends has a hoop house that is full of lettuces and kales and collards. So even though it's January, they Mm -hmm. can still walk out there and pick fresh produce. Wow. Wow. And that's probably a really important thing for you all to be doing is to growing to grow that stuff up there. Because I'll bet you if you had to buy it, it would be very expensive. Oh, the grocery store prices here are incredible. You would not believe. I've had people up here who just about go into shock when they walk through our local Safeway. And that is the only grocery store that we have. So unless you are growing or gathering your own food, you really have no choice. Hmm. And and it can be, it, Kodiak is actually the most expensive city in the entire state of Alaska to live in. Wow. So defraying that crop cost by growing my own or gathering what we can from the wild mm-hmm. not only saves me money, but it also is giving me a wider variety of choices. Yeah. The food is more nutritious because I'm literally picking it while it's still alive and yep. throwing it in my salad bowl and yep. you know life is still coursing through it. So it's Right. giving me way more nutrients than something that's been on a barge for the last two weeks. Yeah. So what's the head of lettuce cost at Safeway? Oh, I think probably around four. To buy organic is probably five, six bucks. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So pretty, it, it, bell peppers are $4 each. 
So it, it probably is fairly expensive to go out to eat then too. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I can't think of anything in Kodiak that's not expensive. Not expensive. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So you mentioned earlier food security, and, for, and I, I want to kind of touch on that and get your sense of what that means to you, being food secure and food security issues. Sure. Yeah. Well, when I first started gardening a couple of years ago, and started researching the state of America's food supply, mm -hmm. I was absolutely appalled. In fact, my scalp just tightened up now thinking about it. Yeah. You know, many other countries in the world have outlawed GMOs. Yeah. They understand that these things are killing us. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are um, lobbyists and monetary connections between our governing agencies and corporations that want to make money. So right. they're they're working to control the world's seed supply, like 78% of the mm -hmm. world's seed supply is now owned by four com companies. And they're messing about with genes so that they can spray them with more and more pesticides that makes insect stomachs explode. Oh, but they're okay for you to eat. Yeah. Uh -uh. Not, <laughs> not in my opinion. There are so many illnesses, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, so many things, leaky gut. So many things are coming as a result of the food that people are eating. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, there's, there's a better way. And to grow your own gives you that confidence of knowing that it's clean. Nobody's sprayed it with poison. They haven't messed around with its DNA. Mm -hmm. It was real food the way it's intended to be. So I use all heirloom seeds and all organic practices. Perfect. Fantastic. So how much of your own food do you grow? That's a little bit hard to quantify because I use so much of it as thank you gifts for mm. friends or for nice? and bartering is a big right. deal for us too. You know, if I can't, I can't justify spending big chunk of change on something, but the person's willing to trade, I'll give them a nice goodie basket of canned venison stew mm. and dehydrated herbs and mm -hmm. All kinds of yummies, and people really appreciate that because not everybody has the time or the knowledge to do to those things themselves. Yeah, yeah, we do the same in, in a city of four point four million here in Phoenix. My my sweetie Heidi has a client. She's a yoga teacher here in town, and she has a client that she takes a weekly food basket to out of our yard. Nice and awesome. you know, yeah, they just love that. It just you know, it, it sparkles up their day, and so yeah, sharing it, bartering it is it's. Uh, Moving forward, I think it's one of the more important things that we can be doing. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. I think we need to do more of it. That. So let's talk about an interesting word called wild crafting. So why don't you tell us uh, what your definition of wild crafting is and then talk about what you wild craft up there. Well, to me, wild crafting means taking advantage of the God-given properties in a plant to minister to my own or my family's health, um, nurturing, well-being. So there are an incredible number of plants on this island that we can harvest to eat or to um, make salves. So the wild, I have, let's see, just on my property alone, I have stinging nettles, which can be used for edible or medicinal. Yep. There's plantain, yarrow, watercress, um, gosh, about three, four, five different kinds of berries, goldenrod for making teas that minister to a woman's mm -hmm. issues, 
there are just a just a wealth of them. Um, even dandelions, dandelions grow just about everywhere, oh, yeah. and that's a plant that offers. Yep. Um, you can you can roast the roots mm-hmm. to eat, or you can make a coffee substitute out of them. You can use the leaves in salads, but um, wild crafting plants for salves, making like balm of Gilead for healing. Uh-huh. Or if uh, if someone's had an injury or a sprain, grabbing comfrey and wrapping that around the injury helps healing faster. You know, back in the day, the Native American Indians knew there was a plant for that. Yeah, not an not an app. There's a plant for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And no matter what issue they were facing, they knew they could go get the bark off the willow trees and chew it for mm-hmm. a toothache, or just all these wonderful things. It's just fascinating. Yeah, I dr- I regularly drink. Um, roasted dandelion tea. Nice. Apparently, it's a, a good liver, liver detox. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So basically, wild crafting is going out and finding what's growing out there and, and using it. Yes, and like our Devil's Club is a plant here that looks quite vicious. It's a very tall stalk, really woody with nasty spikes on it, horrible thorns and big, big, beautiful leaves that kind of look like a foot and a half wide maple leaf. But if you wear your leather gloves and Uh tell the plant that you're thankful for its sacrifice towards your health, dig up the root, you can make tea out of that. And Uh it is actually our indigenous form of ginseng. Oh, (laughs) there you go. There you go. Cool. Yeah. So let's let's move on to the next one. How about do you catch things up there? I'm sure you do. It's Alaska. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the wildest places remaining on the earth. The bulk of our proteins consumption is from things that we have caught or harvested from the wild. My husband is a commercial salmon fisherman, has been for almost half a century. Wow. And so we go out for part of the summer and catch several species of salmon. Uh-huh. And we always make a point, besides selling some of it to the cannery, we also put up quite a bit of it for our own reserve to eat mm-hmm. throughout the year. We'll smoke some, we can some, we dehydrate some. Um, just making sure that we have quite a variety of that put up. Halibut is another favorite. Cod, those are both fish that we catch literally right in our front yard. <laughs> um, and venison, it's the only red meat we eat, are mm-hmm. these beautiful creatures that have lived a wild and free life. And then my husband is a crack shot. It's one bullet, one kill, no suffering. And mm-hmm. that one animal will feed us and our crew for many, many, many meals. Wow. So we're really grateful for those resources. And we understand with our commitment to food purity, mm-hmm. we understand that it's harder for people in the lower 48 at times to get hold of these things. I have a girlfriend in Denver, Colorado. I have supplied her with seafood for probably the last 14 years. And she and her husband and kids only eat Alaskan seafood that they mm-hmm. get from us. From you, they, yeah. they won't buy it in the store. Quite often, unfortunately, fish in the store is mislabeled, whether they're just trying yeah. to clear the shelves of last year's stock. There was actually a study and a report on the news here recently about intentional mislabeling. So oh, wow. I think it's important to know, obviously, where your food comes from. Yep. 
And we are committed to being one of those sources. If people are interested in getting the highest quality of Alaskan seafood, they can check out our website and we have a page there totally committed to taking orders ahead of the season Mm -hmm. so that as we fish, we are catching this Uh, many pounds for Joe and we're catching this many pounds for Sarah. And then we will send it to you at its absolute freshest. It will be frozen because that is a good way to preserve right. food. It does not deteriorate while it's cryogenically preserved. Mm-hmm. But we will ship fish south all season long from probably starting next month when we begin jigging for cod and then halibut a little bit later in the right. season and then salmon throughout the summer. Great. How do I find out about that? Well, you can visit mysticmountain.org and go to our fish for sale page. Fantastic. So, Let's talk about Mystic Mountain. So this is this, uh, uh, you're working on an intentional community, and it says you have visitors and volunteers that come there. What do they do when they come there, and what is Mystic Mountain? Tell me about that. Sure. Well, Mystic Mountain is my vision for what our property could be in the future if we can get some like-minded folks to come and invest their energies and possibly their finances Mm -hmm. in creating a micro community that is committed to self-sufficiency. We want to make sure that we're all on the same page as far as sustainability, uh, that we have the same principles in that regard. Mm And that we can share the the workload. That lifestyle of being off-grid is really, really gratifying, but it's also really, really demanding. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing it for a long time. My husband was out there for 16 years before he met me. And then together, we've been doing it for the last 15 or 16. Wow. And we're kind of getting worn out. But in that time, we have acquired a wealth of knowledge about how to live successfully in the wilderness and we've also developed a pretty great infrastructure at a pretty incredible location. And because we have so much timber on the property for, mm-hmm. for either milling to our own lumber or using for firewood, right. we have this creek that is the sweetest water you've ever tasted. And even with no rain this past summer in town, our creek was still flowing strong and providing us with all the electricity and drinking and running water we wanted. Wow. And so the resources are incredible, and I know that we could sustain easily four or five more entities out there, be mm-hmm. there, be they families or couples. But we would like to get the attention of some folks who want to give it a whirl that have skills that we don't necessarily have. We're good at some things, but we're not mechanics. It'd be super cool to have somebody out there who knew how to tinker with engines and keep Mm -hmm. them maintained. Because if something goes wrong, if something breaks, we can't just trot down to Home Depot and (laughs) part so it's really important to to keep things well maintained right we'd love a kind of a handyman person who knows about carpentry and plumbing and just general fixes like that Uh, i love gardening it's one of my favorite things in the whole world but when you're trying to provide as much as possible for as many people as possible, you need more than one person mm, to make yeah. it work. Yeah. And and everything is more fun when it's shared anyway. And you right. can kind of feed off each other's energy mm-hmm. and you share the same experience and can compare notes. So having people out there who love getting their hands in the dirt and are familiar with composting and successive planting would right. just be a blast for me. And it would free me up to do other things that I simply don't have the time for mm-hmm. now. 
Oh, I, I hear you on that one. When, when uh, Heidi, my partner, and I um, got together and started living together here at the Urban Farm, everything became much easier because all of a sudden I, we had, you know, two sets of hands and hey. two brains. And, it, yeah, it turned <laughs> really nice. Yes, many hands make light work. And, yeah. and again, the sharing of the memories is so precious when you – experience something together with other people and afterwards you can just look at each other and, <laughs> and it's like wow did you just see that whale breach 20 feet in front of our skiff well yeah, yeah how could i miss it and you right. both have a picture in your head for the rest of your life and can yeah. relive it it's pretty cool how fantastic is that so mystic mountain sustainability learning center if i wanted to come there and spend some time i could do that yes and that is something i've been working towards for the last few years and PR and marketing is not my forte. I've been kind of pushing forward, but I'm not real experienced at it. So I really enjoy this opportunity to get the word out. The point of the Sustainability Learning Center is to share these skills. People can come up and be a student for whatever length of time they have available. Let me know. We'll discuss ahead of time what skills mm -hmm. they want to learn. And I will mentor them, make sure that I teach them about, you know, food preservation or foraging or alternative energy or boat safety. So the point of that program is to just share what we've learned and, and help others get excited about what they never knew they were capable of. Wow. And I do, I do have volunteers that come up every year to lend a hand and they're, my very precious little minions that are, <laughs> they, they do some of the dirty work, the elbow grease in return for their efforts. They get free room and board and I teach them a lot of the same skills, anything that they want to learn. Yeah. This, this summer we'll have a young couple coming up that will be committing to six months with me, which is a pretty big deal. Wow. No kidding. For, for somebody to arrive in early May and stay through early October is a pretty large commitment yeah but in return what they're going to see is from start to finish yeah. planting seeds making seedlings putting them in the ground all the way through harvesting and amending the beds uh, yeah. for winter so it's a wonderful trade-off and i absolutely could not have done what we have out there without our volunteers yeah that sounds like an experience of a lifetime quite yeah wow how cool is that <sighs> okay good i'm going to shift a little bit here and I want to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and something you, what you learned from that. Well, last summer, my husband came home from a trip to town for supplies and said that we had the opportunity to go run someone else's boat for a couple of months for the oh, wow. Bristol Bay sockeye season. Uh -huh. And that was exciting to me because we've never been to Dillingham, and it was a different facet of the fishing industry than we'd seen. But unfortunately, I had just finished planting my entire garden. We're uh -oh. talking about 3,500 square feet oh, wow. of indoor and outdoor beds. Right. And the departure date was only a couple of days away. Mm -hmm. And with, with our lack of communication out there, there was absolutely no time for me to find anybody to come caretake the gardens or the property. And so I had to walk away from all of my plants and just oh. wish them the best. Oops. And, and I came back two months later to find that what hadn't been choked out by the weeds mm -hmm was parched from lack of water or baked to death from nobody being there to open mm -hmm. the hoop house walls and let the heat right. out. And so mild failure in that regard was 
not planning ahead for that possibility. And so I learned to do a little more research ahead of time, take a little bit more time to make sure things are done right the first time, because there's always more on your list than there is time in the day. And so I'm going to be focusing this year on installing an irrigation system that is on solar panels and timers so that the watering will be automatic. Yes. We're also going to incorporate a whole lot more organic material into the soil Mm -hmm. and putting on a layer of mulch to help retain moisture. So the biggest lesson I took away from that is to look for the lesson in it, Mm -hmm. learn from it, and move on and not agonize about what's already been, but just take that as a growth experience. Fantastic. So what do you consider your biggest success Well, our very first year of growing out there in 2013, we produced so much organic produce that I had to share it. There was no way we could eat it all. And so I would load up coolers full of my yummy veggies and rhubarb and home baked goods and home canned goods into our skiff and then run for an hour over the open ocean to a nearby native village. For six weeks in a row, I was there every Wednesday and would announce on the radio that I'd arrived and the villagers would come and purchase my products for their consumption. They had no grocery store, so they were very excited about it. Wow. And they even talked about building a CSA, starting uh-huh. a community-supported agriculture. Well, at that time, two years ago, the fuel costs were quite a bit higher than they are now. Mm-hmm. And so I really was only breaking even, but that wasn't my intent, wasn't to make a killing. It was to inspire. Mm-hmm. And So one of my great successes is the fact that they have since then applied for and been granted the funds to build their own hoop house in the community for the community. So they're going to be able to grow on site, which is awesome. And the second, my favorite success was just last summer. I had a girlfriend come up to spend three weeks with me. And she brought her small children, four and six years old. Wow. And I will never forget little Oz crying for most of the skiff ride on the way to our home Mm -hmm. because he didn't want to be there. This was all too much. It was a little scary, out of his element. They weren't happy. And then got to the got to the homestead got them set up in their cabin and she was from utah and moved coming to kodiak where it was only 45 or 50 degrees she was cold the kids were cold so after about two days of dealing with not having a functional toilet um, not having constant heat at the push of a button she was about ready to leave by day two thinking Uh this is a little overwhelming Had no idea what I was getting into, but bless her heart, she stuck it out. She stayed for the whole three weeks. Those kids helped me patrol the gardens every morning with chopsticks to pick up slugs. Mm -hmm. They helped me make carrot seed tapes and plant them, planted potatoes, caught their first fish while they were with us. Wow. It was so exciting. They they learned so much that they didn't even know that they knew. Mm-hmm. But when I got an email in late summer saying that upon their return home to Utah, they had broken ground and planted their very first garden, I literally did a little happy dance. It yeah. was, oh, so rewarding. So I want to say uh, a big shout out to Oz and Ella. Nice. Yep. And nice. they've been asking their mom ever since when they're going to come back to Alaska. When, the, when they're going to come back. How yep. fantastic is that? <laughs> So cool. So it's kind of a deep question. What drives you? What's Gosh. your big what's your big why? 
I guess the desire to make a difference. I, I really love when somebody makes some small or large change in their life as a result of something they've heard from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I share information at every opportunity. And I've had friends who say, you know, I quit drinking soda because of you, Ginger, mm-hmm. or I switched to all organic for the dirty dozen because of what you told me. So having a positive impact on people's lives, inspiring them to do something, maybe it's composting for the first time or making more of an effort to recycle if i can nudge or assist somebody in making some small change like that then i've made a difference in the world in the right direction and i find that really gratifying yeah i completely can completely get that what projects are you currently working on the irrigation is probably the most crucial one um, for the sake of the plants Mm -hmm. but besides that we have high hopes of building a cob oven this year out of locally gathered materials one of my dear friends actually gets paid to fly all over the world and assist people in building their own pizza ovens oh nice she we helped her build hers at her homestead here a couple months ago Mm -hmm. and so we have slated the project to build our own and all of the materials are gathered locally and that's what i find fascinating about cob ovens is no matter where you are in the world Mm -hmm. you can gather materials from your local area to build one that will serve and and last in your climate. So that's pretty exciting to me. I also want to build a rocket stove. Oh, yes. Because, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think that that would be a nice addition to our place. Yep. In the past, whenever we do any clearing and we cut brush and there are all, all these little brush piles, mm-hmm. we've always just burned them thinking that they're waste. But if I had a rocket stove, yep. all those little twigs and branches actually become a valuable fuel source. <laughs> Perhaps, ideally, I will be able to do some of my canning on the rocket stove and thereby save on propane. Yes. Yes, absolutely to all that. I know that to be true. So good job. Yeah, I'm excited. Good job. So, okay, I'm all about education and I have to know, is there one book that's been really influential for you on this journey that you've been on? Well, gosh, there are so many. And because we don't have internet out there, the only resources I have within my grasp at any given moment are books. Mm -hmm. So I have quite an extensive library at home. But one of the most inspirational that was kind of an impetus for me was Living the Good Life by Scott and Helen Nearing. And and it was actually written in, I forget, like the late 60s or early 70s. But this couple decided that they didn't like living in the cement society. They knew they could do better, become more connected with the land. And so they up and moved and they created a homestead. And even when the going was tough, they had this just these principles of sticking to their plan and they adhered to it. They grew because of it. They learned what they were capable of and their impact on the planet just drastically diminished and uh so i was like well one, what one man can do another can do yeah. if they can do this i can too so that was that was a real good starter book for me for sure yeah. how cool is that all right what was the name of it again living the good life by scott and helen nearing perfect and that'll be on the show notes page for today what final piece of advice do you have for our listeners I suppose it would be to just start somewhere. If mm-hmm. you've been thinking about doing something, just do it. Jump in with both feet and, and see what happens. And the worst that could happen is that you learn from a mistake. 
But if it's recycling for the first time or finding a local community garden to participate in or plant some herbs in pots right outside your kitchen door, once you tackle one small project and you have success in that, then you'll have the confidence to try the next one and you can build on that. I would encourage people not to start too large. Mm-hmm that you want to not set yourself up for failure. You do want to make sure that you've got something figured out, handled, it's working for you, and then take on the next thing. And most of your listeners have such incredible resources at their fingertips, whether it's YouTube videos, garden clubs, Facebook groups, nurseries that offer classes like your awesome root Phoenix, which I have taken classes at your place before, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, so whatever, gardeners are nurturers by nature, and they love to help plants and people grow. So reach out to what's around you, decide what you want to try, get some information. And speaking of information, be sure that you're not going to head the wrong direction as far as city ordinances and such. You don't want to create more problems for yourself. So find out what your limits are. Start somewhere and do something and then move on from there, and you will be surprised at what you're capable of. Great. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Ginger. It's been a treat. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, you can check out our website. That's www.mysticmountain.org. And that's mystic, M-Y-S-T-I-C. And uh, my email address is on there. My cell phone is on there. Feel free to give me a jingle or drop me a line. I am here for answering any questions that I can. Great. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.